we would always go to the Freiburg Fair to get our like sawdust animal fix. And then one year we just were like, we're gonna get some chickens. We had like a one acre lot at Arundel. And so we got this little sunny chicken coop. We got five chickens. So chickens were the gateway drug for us. This is The Day That Changed Everything, a podcast series produced by Maine Biz, Maine's business news source. Every two weeks, we will post an interview with a Maine business leader whose life or business was upended in one day and learn how they navigated their way back. If all great change is preceded by chaos, then this podcast series seeks to help us make sense of the chaos. The Day That Changed Everything is sponsored by Norway Savings Bank. Welcome, Maine Biz listeners. This is Andrea Tetzlaff with the Maine Biz podcast team. Michael Weaver grew up in Alaska before joining the military for a career that would eventually bring him to Maine, where he met his wife, Nicole, who grew up in Western Maine. Their careers took them to D.C. and to curb homesickness. They would watch television that reminded them of home, such as Alaska, The Last Frontier. It was that show that inspired them to start a bison farm in the foothills of Western Maine and learn all about the challenges and rewards of raising bison on their family farm. Today, I'm going to talk with Michael and Nicole about what it was like to start Bigelow Fields Bison Ranch in Eustis, Maine. Welcome, Michael and Nicole. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. This is our first time recording a podcast, so we're excited. Can you give us a little bit of your background, maybe start with Michael, where you grew up? I grew up in Anchorage, Alaska, but left after high school. And so really haven't been back other than to visit family since. And Nicole? I grew up right here in the Western Mountains of Maine and Stratton. And so, Michael, you said you grew up in Anchorage, Alaska, but haven't been back since. So what did you do after you graduated high school when you left Anchorage? I joined the Marine Corps at 17 and was stationed in California, Camp Pendleton. And between overseas deployments in California, I kind of was sick of not having a winter time. I grew up with a winter and I wanted a winter. And so I had the obligation to be able to pick where I wanted to go next. And Maine was on the list and I'd never been to Maine before. So came out to Maine because I wanted winter and here I am, haven't left. So, and I just want to go back just a little bit, Michael, growing up in Anchorage, what did your family do? My mother worked several different jobs. My father's the main reason we moved up there and he works in the auto parts industry. He serviced specifically Air Force service vehicles on the flight line at Fort Richardson. And then Nicole, how about you? You grew up in Western Maine. Did you stay in Western Maine or did you leave as well? I pretty much stayed here in the Western Mountains of Maine. I did go to college at the University of Maine at Farmington. And then ended up for a brief period of time up in Bangor for maybe less than a year and then met Michael. And we got married fairly quickly and moved to Southern Maine so that he could finish out his time and being active duty for the Marine Corps. So we left for a little bit, but ultimately ended up back here. Once you were retiring from your military career, Michael, what were your thoughts on what your career was going to be? Aspirations wise, it was kind of always to continue public service, but more from a working for the government kind of perspective. So that's ultimately why we made the move down to DC. I was traveling down there fairly regularly working for the, as a contractor for the government. And so Nicole said, well, why don't I put my name in the hat for some positions down there? And so that's why we moved down to DC. Michael had always expressed an interest in getting a government job after he 
finished his schooling. And so I always sort of kept my finger on the pulse of different jobs that were in my field, which at the time was corporate wellness. And I came across a job in the DC area and we talked it over and I said, what the heck, you might as well apply for it, qualify for it. If I get it, it's in the DC area. It was sort of a shot in the dark at the time. And I ended up getting the job and, and that's what brought us to the DC area. And then Michael was able to finish his degree at George Mason University, pick up his contracting gigs for the government. So how long did you guys stay down in DC? It was a brief stint. We lasted a solid two years in the urban. <laughs> and at what point were you still in DC or had you moved back to Maine? At what point do you start thinking about potentially ranch life? Pretty quickly after having our first child. So our first, our son Barrett was born and we had friends that also had children and just the household and bustle of living in and two years out for childcare, and we had friends that had issues like they were worried about hitting timeline. It was just very stressful to think about having kids and and trying to split that in a corporate kind of working lifestyle. Plus, it wasn't necessarily the area we wanted our kids to be raised in. So I think that's kind of what pushed us in the direction of, you know, looking for an alternative. At the time, we were definitely discussing where we wanted to go because we were in a unique position of basically being able to go where we wanted. So I definitely, we talked about going up to Alaska for a few years with a very strict timeline on how long I would be up there before I came. <laughs> but Michael ultimately decided that, you know, being near my family was important for support. And so we were lucky enough to find what we needed to to, to get back to me. And then, so the information that I read said that you guys kind of had started watching this Alaska, the last frontier program and the, and, and then fast forward, started a bison farm. How did you go from watching that show to thinking we could raise bison, you know, Maine could be a place where we could have a bison farm. So we had like a, a like a pocket of shows that we used to watch in DC because you know, that's we in the summertime, especially like we wanted to stay cool and it would get hot down in Virginia for us. So we watched like Northwoods Law, Alaska Last Frontier, and it gave us, I think, our fix of home when we were feeling homesick. So Alaska Last Frontier was definitely on that list. But Oh, yeah. So I think that kind of got us over a little bit of homesickness as well. But ultimately, it was we've always had the idea of agriculture in some sort of scale and in our minds even when we, before we had moved down to DC, you know, dealing like chickens and knew that we wanted horses and other animals. So that's, it was never out of our minds. It was just yeah. now having opportunity and the time and with kids now entering the picture, it was kind of definitely put a little bit more impetus into making it happen as soon as possible. We lived in a development in Arundel, like a, a small development, but a development still and like we would always go to the Freiburg Fair to get our like sawdust animal fix. And then one year we just were like, we're going to get some chickens. We had like a one acre lot at Arundel. And so we got this little sunny chicken coop. We got five chickens. So chickens were the gateway drug for us. That's funny. So had either of you had any livestock or farming background? Not, no. I, I think that we probably solidly fall in that first generation. Did you 
find property that you sort of immediately knew was going to be the right fit? Did you go into it knowing that the end goal was going to be specifically a bison farm? Or was it just sort of some form of agriculture? Like walk me through kind of how that process happened. So originally I was more thinking about cows. So beef, we, we wanted to be in meat production. We wanted to farm and we wanted to raise food for people. And I was originally thinking beef and was starting to kind of look into the backgrounds of planning for that when Nicole brought up the idea of bison. I think I literally like posed the question one day as we were like spitballing back and forth about what the heck we were going to be doing. And I think I said, well, you could buy bison at the grocery store. And so that's what kind of started the ball rolling. We looked, started looking into it and sure enough, people started, were raising them commercially and, and that's what sent us down our path. I would say that the business planning phase of our journey came before finding the land. Yes. So, so at this point in time, we were in DC, we were doing all the business planning. We were looking at different farms in the Virginia, Maryland area. We knew that we were going to be moving back to Maine. We knew that we were going to be raising bison. We just had not had, we were actively looking for property at the time before we made the move back. So we were looking for property specifically knowing that we were going to be grazing bison. So what does that business planning look like? So we were fortunate to, well, we went to several different farms in the, in the region that raised bison and they kept recommending, you know, common resources such as the National Bison Association. And so there, there's just a wealth of, you know, background reading, but also business planning resources on the National Bison Association's website. And so we kind of utilized that as a, a template to start. And that's how it went from infrastructure development to timelines for raising animals to feed production to, so it was. I feel like market analysis, like how many bison farms are in me? There are a few, believe it or not, but not many. So the market here is definitely, you know, open to another bison farm. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll hear more from Michael and Nicole about starting this bison farm and some of the challenges that that presented for them as a business, as well as how they ultimately succeeded. We will be right back. This is Jennifer Cook of Norway Savings Asset Management Group. Here, we believe in family asset management. Simply put, it means we do right by you and your loved ones. And it's not necessarily the size of the portfolio we care about. It's the story behind it, a story that's unique to you. Let us help you write your next chapter. For more information, visit norwaysavings.bank. Investment products are not FDIC insured, not guaranteed by the bank, and may lose value. It's definitely become one of the hot things to do when you're visiting Rangeley or Stratton. Everybody's like, have you seen the bison? Especially now with the babies bouncing around the field, people love to come and watch them. So yes, our community is pretty spectacular and has been very supportive. We are back with Michael and Nicole talking about their Bigelow Fields Bison Ranch in Western Maine. And so I'm curious, kind of what gave you guys the confidence to go from living in D.C., I have this idea about starting a bison ranch to buying land and pulling the trigger on it? So like we mentioned previously, once we sort of nailed down our our business plan, we were then in the hunt for property in Maine. We knew that Michael was going to be working for the 
government in Portsmouth. So initially our search for land started in Southern Maine, but we quickly realized we weren't going to be able to acquire the land required to build the herd up to the size of we wanted for the price points we needed to meet. And ironically enough, there was a property on the market at the time listed with the Maine Farmland Trust that Michael and I had looked at years before and the price on it was double what we ended up getting it for. And we remembered it because it was just such an outstanding spot and we just, it was a dream. And so we were both shocked to see it on the market at the time that we were looking for it when we were in D.C. for half of the price because of the fact that the, the main farmland trust was able to put an agricultural easement on it. Not only that, it was in the exact stretch of road that we would have needed it to be in order for it to make sense for Michael's work that he was going to be doing when we moved back. So we quickly sort of gathered everything we needed. Luckily for us, we had a, our business plan put together, which was a requirement for putting an offer in on the property. Now, this property had sat vacant for four years, but at the time that we put our offer in on it, another offer was on the table. So we were really holding our breath there for a few weeks. So tell me a little bit about the property. How large is it? Did it come with any structures? Was it all just land? So the property is 126 acres. It was originally the old Nile farm. It, he had sheep and dairy on the property. The original farmhouse is no longer there, but one of the barns was. So, so since acquiring it before, before us, they put a, a cabin or a, a log home on the property. So there, there was a log home, but as far as the original farm infrastructure, the only thing that was really there was the original barn. And so, which is stunning, which is a stunning, barn. but then since then we, so we had to put all the infrastructure in place for the animals prior to them arriving. So another barn corrals, all the fencing, new wells. What was Maine Farmland Trust's involvement in your acquisition of that property? So Maine Farmland Trust, part of what their mission is, is to preserve Maine farmland. So our property came with how many acres of field, would you say? 30. 30 acres of field and the rest was wooded. So they originally bought the property from the previous owners, found that the land was valuable as farmland, put an agricultural easement on this farmland, and then resold it. So essentially we purchased it from Maine Farmland Trust with the understanding that we would uphold the agricultural easement, which for us is actually something that we're really proud of because farm land is just diminishing at rapid paces, especially in the state of Maine. Everywhere you go, there are solar panels being put up on beautiful, pristine fields used for feeding animals and growing food. So it wasn't a deterrent for us that the land had an easement on it at all. In fact, we're thrilled to be involved in that. So for those who may not be familiar with that term, what does an agricultural easement mean? Essentially, to dumb it way down, it just means that our fields will always be fields. So we can't subdivide our land and sell it for other people to put houses on or things like that. Like we have a very specific part of our property that we are able to put structure, additional structures on. Can you give a little feel for where you're located? We are situated in the Western mountains of Maine. 
in Lane Township, which is actually right between the Stratton Eustis area and Rangeley. So we have the benefits of tapping into both of those markets, Sugarloaf, Saddleback, Rangeley Lakes, anybody who's coming up to visit Flagstaff and Stratton. So, and it's technically like 30 minutes from the Canadian border. So. Right. So that's a really remote, I mean, Maine's sort of remote anyway, but that area, particularly in Maine, is remote for transportation, for logistics. So I'm just curious if there were any difficulties in getting livestock to you. And and quite frankly, how difficult is it to acquire bison to start your herd? So logistically, we are part of us being remote in the Western Mountains is there's a lot of timber harvesting and and trucking and so because of that the roads and and trucking is a normal routine business so having everything both animals infrastructure gates corrals everything trucked to us wasn't an issue because it's routine daily operation meaning that a lot of people could backhaul for us if they were going down to pennsylvania to deliver lumber they could pick up a load of fencing from or Ken Cove or something and bring it back to and back Town. Yeah. So they weren't coming back empty. And, and so it's worked out from logistics trucking particularly. Initially, when we started, we were having to go get our feed in Augusta. Gosh, every couple of weeks. So you do end up putting the miles on when you live so rural. We did end up investing in a, in a grain bin and we're able to get our grain delivered now. But for the first two years, we were, you know, traveling back and forth to get our feed. The other thing that does present a challenge for us is it, we prefer to have our animals processed at a USDA certified facility. Not all butchers in the state of Maine are USDA certified. So we have fairly limited options in the state for where we can bring those animals. We tend to bring ours to Anson, which is an hour and 15, I would say, from us, time-wise. And then but the majority of the time, we're actually bringing our animals up to Herring Brothers in Guilford, which is a solid two and a half hour trip for us. So we're on the road quite a bit. Is that, and you guys are tuned in with the community. Is that different than like your counterparts that are in that Ohio region or out west or anything like that? It is not unique to any farm or food producer. The, the, the lack of processing facilities across the country, I think, is a, is a growing issue. It's definitely a bottleneck for farmers here. Which actually, the state just accessed federal funding for a $19 million grant for farmers and processors in the state of Maine. We applied for it from a farming standpoint, but we're just really thankful that those funds are going to be made available to processors so that they can improve their systems and help hopefully reduce the bottleneck that we're experiencing. Yeah, maybe invest in some added infrastructure to help not make the the bottleneck so extreme. Exactly. So is there anything specific that a bison ranch requires in terms of infrastructure or, or caring for the herd that's different than a beef farm or or that might explain why there aren't that many in Maine specifically? So much more robust fencing. These animals are, are, are very wild and so you need very rugged and robust fencing to contain them. Generally speaking, you know, as long as they have food and they have water, they don't, they don't necessarily want to test those fences, but it can happen. And and because they're wild animals, especially if the, their fight or flight response is triggered and, and flight is 
taken away from them, then they will fight and and not a lot will hold them back. So. I was going to say, and they'll probably win most times. Exactly. So much stronger gates and 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 handling facilities than you would need for beef cattle. Um, so when you acquired your first herd, how long is it from getting that herd to when you start or able to start going to market with product? Typically, it depend. I guess it would depend on when you purchase the herd, what time of year. We purchased them in the fall, so we purchased pregnant animals in the fall and so it wasn't for another six months before they had the calves and then you raise those calves anywhere from 24 to 30 months so you're talking two and a half to three years before you see any sort of income from your initial investment which is a, a you know large time to yeah i was gonna say was that all figured into your business plan before before you kind of had started to knowing that it was going to be that long of a turnaround it was to some degree but we were in a unique situation so the first year we had calves we had 12 calves but 11 of them ended up being female so we kind of had to change our business plan a little bit because instead of bringing all those animals to market, we knew that we were wanting to expand and grow our herd anyway. So we made the ultimate decision to retain all of those females. So we went an additional year before we were processing animals because we wanted to grow our herd. So yeah, it was a long return on investment planned, but, and, and accounted for, but definitely something to think about, especially somebody that wants to enter into the business. Yeah, so we essentially run two separate herds on our property, our original breeding herd and then the daughters of our original breeding herd. And we brought in another bull from Pennsylvania to run with our original bull, Yukon's daughters, so that we can keep our breeding lines clean. So how large was the original herd that you bought? We started with 14 animals. And where are you today? 70 two at the moment wow and how what's that time frame like when did you buy your original herd versus where we are today the fall of 2017 yeah and so in terms of the farm as a business i'm curious kind of what your marketing or selling strategy is so when we purchased the property basically upon moving in and once we knew that we were, in fact, going to be moving forward with purchasing the bison and, and building the farm, I, right out of the gate, started to build our social media. And just by sharing our story and sharing what we're doing. And so that was, ended up being a great way to establish a captive audience. And then we also began before the bison was ready for market, we began to sell sourdough breads and other goods out of a licensed micro bakery in our home. So at farmers markets and stuff, just to start to get the name out there, we partnered with some local stores and restaurants. And I think that really helped us to become familiar to visitors and the community. And so when the time came for us to sell bison meat, people were eager and they the meat has sold like hotcakes and we're really just sort of coming into our season of regularly harvesting animals. So we're excited to see 
what the year holds for us. We we partnered with Copeland Dinner House, which is a restaurant here in Stratton. We recently partnered with Bitzel Brothers up in Milo. I know they have a location in Portland, but we work with Joe up in Milo and he has some really amazing bison tacos on his menu. Are there any other sort of health benefits that come from bison meat as opposed to other forms of protein? So bison, since they are essentially wild animals, they are much more nutritionally dense meat than, you know, commercial cattle. So higher in protein, lower in calories, lower in fat, higher in iron. So it it is a healthier cut of meat. From the very beginning, it's been kind of our goal to use as much of the animal as possible. So not just selling the meat, but collecting the hides, utilizing the skulls, trying to utilize as much of the animal as possible, utilizing the bones for bone broth, so on and so forth. Part of processing animal is the organ meats, the heart, the liver, the kidneys, and, and you know, that's stuff that, you know, a hundred years ago was on a routine menu for most families, but not so much anymore. And so we were selling it for dog food and came up with the idea of incorporating it into a ground blend. So we created the Huntsman's blend, which is 75% ground meat and 25% organ meat. So there's the liver, the heart, and the kidney. It's all ground up together. So it, it, it allows somebody to get all the nutritional benefits of eating organ meat without having to, you know, deal with the flavor or, you know, the bad stigma, you know, the liver and onions mentality that some people might be turned off from. Nicole, you were mentioning the community and kind of things that you are doing to grow your presence in the community there. Have they been supportive or have you received feedback from the community about the farm? Right from the beginning, everybody was super excited about the bison coming to there. I mean, I think every time we'd pop into town, someone would ask us when the bison were coming. And I think it's definitely become one of the hot things to do when you're visiting Rangeley or Stratton. Everybody's like, have you seen the bison? Especially now with the babies bouncing around the field, people love to come and watch them. So yes, our community is pretty spectacular and has been very supportive. And when we had been talking before, you had mentioned agro-tourism. So what is that? And you had talked about it's really kind of part of your mission to grow agro-tourism in Maine. So can you explain that to me a little bit? Agro-tourism is just as, as our society progresses, people's experience living or being around farms is just significantly been diminished. You know, people are growing up in cities and they don't necessarily have the connection with their food sources. So we really wanted to open that up and allow them to create that experience. Come out to the farm, see what it's like to be on a farm, come see how the animals are treated, how they're fed, how they're handled, how they're processed, you know. So it's a, it tells a story and they get out, they get to experience that from a consumer. You know, they get, they come out and they see those calves and next year they know that those calves are going to be yearlings. And next year they know that the seedlings are going to be, you know, what they're going to be purchasing. So also, you know, the main staple is the bison, but also I think it's a lot of families come out just because we have kind of a barnyard area set up where they can come see chickens and pigs and goats and our horses and our cows and just kind of be friendly with some of the animals as well. And do you kind of call on or have a good rapport with the other bison farms that you mentioned are in Maine? Yeah, specifically, I think the closest farm that we, or the farm we work the most closely with would be Hackmatack Farm. 
down in Berwick. They're doing very similar things like a farm store that's open for people to come and get local goods and, and their products that they raise at their farm. And then when we first were getting into the business, we definitely visited Beach Hill Bison. I believe they're in Waterboro. I would say that those are the two connections that we have that we worked with the most. Otherwise, we're, we're doing a lot of networking through the Eastern Bison Association, which is based all over, you know, the East Coast. And otherwise, it's just neighbors who are always willing to jump in and help, whether it be because I'm terrified of snakes and there's a snake in my barn and I don't want to go in there and Michael's not home. Or like, you know, we have a situation like a coyote in our pasture that we need to get out or a deer stuck in the fence. Like we have some of the best people in our village who are just a pull call away and willing to help us anytime we need it. And sometimes they are perfect strangers. A few months ago, we had somebody that, well, Quill Hill is close at hand, so they, it's a scenic view so you drive up to quill hill and you can see our farm from it so there's a gentleman up there and he looked out and he said hey what is that out there and somebody happened to know it was a bison farm they said well it's a bison farm and so he drove down it just so happened to be one of the days we were working all the animals through the crowds and giving them their vaccinations and pregnancy checking them and so he showed up at like 8 30 in the morning and worked all day with us so did he have any bison like knowledge or history no we kind of gave him a safety brief and had him heading gates and he decided to work all day with this. So. Wow. That's fun. Talk about agro-tourism. Exactly. <laughs> so I, I'm curious if you have any advice from people who are sort of taking some inspiration from some not so traditional sources like you all did with some reality TV there, but think that there might be the possibility of starting a business. I think a solid business plan is what started it for us. So everything started lining up. And as we went through the numbers and as we did more research and as we talked to more people, it just, it, it put more wind in our sails. And so by the time we were done with that, I think that we, we had a firm grasp on what needed to get done and how we were going to accomplish it and what that was going to look like. And so all of these negatives that might you know hinder you and your forward progress, I think that confidence was just built through that process. And so it just kind of developed the drive and, and the confidence to continue and take another step and then we and take another step and take another step. So I think that was key. Yeah. And I would add on to that to say, to highlight the piece where you said we talked to a lot of people. Like if there's a certain business venture that you want to take on, I personally can't encourage you enough to go and talk to the people in the field that you are pursuing because nobody... There's no better resource than the people who are actually doing the work that you envision yourself doing one day. Sure. That's great advice. So did, did being in Maine present any challenges for you starting a business that you might not have faced in other states? I would say that it, it helped us. One, because I have a lot of connections um, in the area that we are building the farm. So lots of built-in support here as well as family. And also being that it is niche in Maine has helped us a lot because you can't just go to the supermarket and buy a bison tomahawk steak. So I think it's actually really helped us to be where we're at. At this point, how have you expanded your business from being maybe strictly livestock to are there other parts of the business that farm is expanding into? So our big aspect of Bigelow Fields just blew up. And it became an unsuspecting 
aspect to our business, I would say. And a lot of the credit for that can be given to, unfortunately, the COVID-19 pandemic, because that just seemed to be when people really started to show up at the farm and, and want to purchase baked goods. So along with the raising of the bison, we also have our licensed micro bakery where we, where we focus on producing sourdough bread, like slow fermented, real food with real ingredients. And then we have some treats, of course, that we throw in there too. I have a cinnamon roll brioche bread that's pretty popular. I've worked really hard to master making macarons, which are those cute little French cookies. And we, we do all kinds of things with our sourdough discard. We make cookies with them. And yeah, and then we also are pursuing sort of diversifying the bison a little bit and with our snack sticks, our bison snack sticks. And then we're also going to be shipping a bunch of meat cut down to Pennsylvania to be turned into jerky this year. So we're kind of excited about that too. With that kind of explanation, Nicole, of sort of how the business is expanding, what are your long-term plans on the farm? both kind of with your bison herd and then also with sort of expanding that bakery additional side of the of the farm. So from the bison perspective, we are in the process of making as much field as possible on our farm. So we we were 126 acres when we started. Only about 30 of that was was open ground. The rest was wooded. And so last, the year before last, we cut about 25 acres and last year we stumped that and seeded that down. And so now the grass is growing there. And then this winter we harvested another 65 acres. And so we're in the process of getting that turned into good usable pasture and getting it all fenced in. So, you know, from the bison perspective, it's really just growing as much grass as possible and as much nutrition as possible on the farm. And then always upgrading our infrastructure for them as well. You know, right at the moment, all our corrals are out in the open. So it'd be nice to to get that under shelter so that we could work them through the winter or we're, we're less dependent on the on the weather um, going forward. Yeah. So that's kind of the bison side of the house. And then on the bakery side. Yeah, I think on the bakery side of things right now, the name of the game is finding balance because you are looking at a team of two for the most part. We have some supplemental help here and there, but I think if anybody is familiar with baking, they can relate to the time commitment that it is. And we're also raising two small children at the same time and Michael works off the ranch half the time. So we're really working right now towards finding balance and also what that's going to look like for the future and how it could be sustainable for us as human beings, really, because it's a lot, it's a lot of work. So we'd love to see, we actually did just get selected for a grant through the TIF fund, which is focused on unorganized township townships to expand our, our farm store. Cause right now our farm store is like this small hutch building with like a freezer and some space for our baked goods, but we don't have internet access. There's no like AC control. It's just very, very basic. So we see our farm store becoming a bigger, more like legitimized space where we take our bakery out of our home and we put it in with the farm store. Is your long-term goal for the farm to be where you're both kind of exclusively working and how are, are there challenges at this point that prevent you from getting there? Or is it just sort of a, a, a growing of the farm that will eventually naturally lead you there? That is the long-term rule. And that was 
always our goal was to run this as a family business. And, and we'll get there. I think initially it's just that we're not harvesting as much meat yet because we're still in the growing phase of the business. Once we're like full-fledged harvesting, you know, regularly throughout the year, we'll hopefully get there and it'll support our family and and yeah, we'll both be on the ranch full time. And so how can people learn more about Bigelow Fields or what it is that you're doing there or learn where to go to come and visit you all? Sure. So we have a website. It's www.bigelowfieldsbisonridge.com. But I always tell people the best way to keep your fingers on the pulse of what we've got going on is through Facebook or Instagram. And on Facebook, it's Bigelow Fields. And our Instagram is BigelowFieldsBison.RedHouse. And we post there, I would say, daily. We also are old school and like phone calls once in a while, so give us a ring. This has been a production of MainBiz. Find out more about this podcast and other MainBiz media products at MainBiz.biz. The Day That Changed Everything is sponsored by Norway Savings Bank. The MainBiz podcast team includes Renee Cordes, Will Hall, Allison Mason, and Andrea Tetzlaff. Audio editor and producer is Chris Sedanka. Logo and marketing design by Matt Selva. Subscribe to the Main Biz podcast at mainbiz.biz or via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Copyright 2022.